Whether you like it or not, pro-life public policy, if it can't stand up to judicial scrutiny, isn't worth much. Ensuring that life-affirming legislation is not only well-intentioned, but also artfully crafted and ready to win in court is a vital part of the pro-life movement. Today, we speak with Rachel Morrison, litigation counsel at Americans United for Life, on what it takes to defend pro-life laws in court. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, joined today by Rachel Morrison, Litigation Counsel at Americans United for Life. Rachel, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're having these conversations with different folks from Americans United for Life, and we want to get right into it. We want to hear first about your story, Rachel's story. Rachel, when did you join Americans United for Life? So I joined Americans United for Life in January of last year, so I've been here just over a year and a half now. That's awesome. So what brought you here? I came to D.C. after law school for a clerkship with a judge in D.C. Um, After my clerkship, I was a constitutional law fellow with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which was a one-year fellowship to do religious liberty litigation. And I was looking for another opportunity to do policy litigation on constitutional issues, things related to the First Amendment, free speech, freedom of religion, rights of conscience. I was excited when this opportunity opened up to come to AUL to not only work on those types of issues, but also to do something to save lives and help create a culture of life in the U.S. Yeah, creating creating concrete law and policy that's going to actually hold up. There are some folks who kind of knew they wanted to be a lawyer from the time they were a little kid and others who decide later, where do you fall on that spectrum? So when I was in third grade, I wanted to be a lawyer, but by the time I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I ended up studying math and speech communication. I like puzzles, problem solving, critical thinking, public speaking, and then at the end of my junior year, I came back to law school, bought some books, studied for the LSAT, and went off to law school. That's awesome. So there there are a lot of things that you can do as an attorney, a lot of different specialties, a lot of different focuses. What makes you passionate about fighting for uh, for a culture of life and for laws that reflect that? I think often lawyers get a bad rap of not being very ethical or just doing things for the money or working for big business or defending uh, bad criminals. And, and those things are important in an adver- uh, adversary system. But the ability to do something you enjoy and make a difference in the world and in the lives of others and in the country is something that you often can't do. And so it's a great chance to do that. So you are not uh, simply a pro-life attorney, but you're also particularly here at Americans United for Life Litigation Council. What does a litigation council do? So litigation council does litigation. So to break that down a little bit more in non-legalese, It is someone who is involved in court cases by, uh, so I track cases around the country that involve life. And so this is just keeping tabs on what's going on in these cases, providing resources for those defending these laws. And we also write briefs in support of these laws uh, on behalf of various 
organizations uh, to support these laws. And so that's more substantive research and writing and uh, filing those in the court and then doing media on that. And so that's something that uh, as a policy organization, AUL will do that normal law firms don't do generally. So I will do radio interviews discussing court cases or briefs we have filed. I'll write op-eds or media statements and the like. So I'm curious, oftentimes it's a sort of a David and Goliath paradigm that life-affirming Americans are in compared to those who advocate for abortion, whether that's Planned Parenthood or other major organizations. Do you have a sense of, you know, how many, you know, what, what, what are the opponents that you're facing essentially, you know, Planned Parenthood, other groups, how many people like you are there there? Well, there's a lot of loud people on the other side. I think we can say that there's about a half dozen organizations or so, Planned Parenthood, ACLU, Center for Reproductive Rights, and a few others that are involved in litigation to challenge pro-life laws and to invalidate them and make sure that they don't go into effect on the other side. Okay, so on a recent episode, Steve Aiden told us what an amicus brief is, a friend of the court brief, and the important role of that. Can you explain what your goal is when you write one of these briefs? What are you trying to accomplish by submitting one of these briefs? So an amicus brief is different than a brief that's submitted on behalf of a party. If you're submitting a brief on behalf of a party, you have to address all of the legal issues and you have a limited number of pages and words. And so you can't go into depth necessarily on any one issue because you have to address them all. And often these cases involve a lot of different legal claims and issues. And so the goal of an amicus brief, I think, is twofold. The first is to show support. And the number of amicus briefs filed in support of a case is important because it flags to the judges or the justices that this case is important and a lot of people concerned about the outcome and they support this side in this case. So the second part of that is that as an amicus brief, while filing a brief saying, me too, I agree, has value, it's even more valuable if you can bring up additional information that's important for the court to consider when they're looking at this case. So for example, in the case that the Supreme Court was looking at this past term on Indiana's fetal remains law, we wrote a brief discussing what a fetus is and going through the stages of development and pointing out that human fetuses are human beings and that it's rational for a state to require the humane disposition of human fetal remains. And so we included a graphic from a medical encyclopedia dictionary laying forth the various stages by week of, uh, of an unborn human. Uh, and on the picture itself, it said human fetal development. And so this is important information that we could go into to try to explain what is a fetus. It's not just a clump of cells or a body part, but it's an actual human being. And as such, it should be treated with respect and dignity in life and in death. We've spoken with Clark Forsyth, and one of the things he mentioned in the context of the issue of prudence as a, as a public virtue, especially in the life issues debate, uh, is, is sort of the, the role of, of classical wisdom, the things that we can't forget. And uh, as you're describing this, and, and I, I love that phrase in your brief, human fetuses are human. I mean, it's so simple. It's so direct. And it's, it's, you know, Aristotle talks about uh, the, the things that are most self-evident are also the things that are the most difficult for one to see. Um, so I, I think you did a great job with that particular uh, phrase, the economy of language, 
because it does, uh, for me even, it helped me think about how can I state these things more simply? Thanks. It was fun to write, and I actually learned a lot myself as well. So let's talk, uh, shift gears a bit, and, and let's talk about uh, Title X cases. Um, there's been lots of litigation regarding Title X. It's a thorny issue. If you, if you look up Title X on you know, Google News or somewhere, you're going to see 20 different stories uh, with, with radically different quotes and takes. There's so much complication there. I'm wondering if we can just start with the basics. What, what is Title X? So Title X was enacted in 1970 to provide financial support for healthcare organizations offering pre-pregnancy family planning services. So this includes a broad range of acceptable and effective family planning methods and services, including natural family planning methods, infertility services, and services for adolescents. And so after Congress enacted this law, it goes to the Department of Health and Human Services to fill out what that is and come up with regulations of how they're going to enact this program and give grants and the requirements, the specific requirements that grantees are required to follow. So also in 1970, Congress enacted Section 1008 of the Act, which explicitly excludes abortion from the scope of family planning and states that none of the funds appropriated under this title or Title X shall be used in programs where abortion is a method of family planning. So there's a, an, an interesting thing in there that I picked up, and, and Catherine Glenn Foster, our president and CEO, testified on this over the summer to the House, to a subcommittee. The phrase pre-pregnancy family planning seems to be a key one that's kind of lost in this discussion to some degree, right? Because abortion is conflated with this, how the issue is, is perceived publicly because of people who want to use Title X funds to cover um, abortion services. Is that fair? Correct. Uh, under the Obama administration, HHS had regulations that allowed and in fact required Title X providers to refer for abortion services. So as you can see, this seems to directly contradict the statute in Title X itself and to not follow the intent of Congress. So under the current administration, HHS issued a new regulation getting rid of the Obama regulation, which required referrals for abortion and allowed abortion services to be provided in conjunction with Title X services. Even though technically those funds weren't supposed to go to the, towards those abortion services, it helped create this infrastructure supporting the location that provided both Title X services and the abortion services. So HHS's new rule got rid of those regulations and required that there be physical and financial separation between Title X services and projects and abortion services that those who want to accept Title X funds provide. And as you can imagine, Planned Parenthood and a lot of the pro-abortion organizations and states didn't like this because it would require them to funnel Title X funds away from supporting their abortion services and to solely the Title X projects. And so there were eight lawsuits filed. There was two in Washington State, two in Oregon, two in California, one in Maine, and one in Baltimore, Maryland. And so the two in Washington, Oregon, and California, they were combined at, at the district court level, at the trial court level. And so there were preliminary injunctions issued, one out of Washington, one out of Oregon, and one out of California, preliminarily enjoining the rule from going into effect while the litigation is ongoing. 
And what that essentially meant was that the Trump administration reversion to basically prior practice, that injunction said, no, you have to maintain President Obama regulation, right? Correct. You have to maintain the status quo and the changes cannot go into effect until everything's been resolved in the courts. Okay. And so what happened next was that got appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers uh, the West Coast in Alaska and Hawaii. And the three-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit decided to put all of those injunctions on hold, which basically means that the rule can continue to go into effect while the case is being appealed to the Ninth Circuit. That decision to uh, reinstate the rule and to put the preliminary injunctions on hold got appealed to the en banc Ninth Circuit, which is a compilation of 11 judges of the court. And so usually an en banc court is all of the judges on the court, but since the Ninth Circuit is so large, it's only 11 of all of the sitting judges, since there are a lot more judges than that. And the court ruled 7-4 that the regulations from HHS would continue to be in effect while litigation is ongoing and that the preliminary injunction should stay on hold for the time being. And so that was very exciting news that uh, a circuit court, which has been predominantly very liberal in the past and has struck down not only regulations under the Trump administration, but a lot of other uh, more conservative administrations is now, as we've seen with the appointment of a lot of judges under the Trump administration that are constitutionalists and originalists and committed to trying to interpret the law and not just their policy preferences, that there's been this shift on the Ninth Circuit. And we see this in fact in this case here. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating case, I think, especially for those just kind of interested in, in the workings of the government in general, um, regardless of your your background, your persuasion politically, it's, it's one of the rare cases where the executive branch doesn't appear to be trying to carve out any new thing. It's not, a, it's not an instance where the president or, or the executive branch is trying to assert new powers through executive orders or things. It's actually an unusual case, I think, compared to most of them, where the executive is trying to restore congressional intent. And, you know, that's that's often what what we don't see happen, because we usually see the executive trying to take power from the congressional leadership on all, all sorts of issues. So what was the perspective of Americans United for Life? What is our position and, and why are we right? So we filed five briefs in in these cases. One was at the main district court because the main plaintiffs in that case brought an undue burden challenge, basically saying this regulation harms a woman's right to abortion, uh, which is absurd when you think about it because Title X explicitly excludes abortion from the scope of its funding and projects. And to say that if you don't provide me Title X funds, then I can't get an abortion under a program that's not even supposed to include abortion is just absurd. Yeah. And so the district court judge agreed with that. And the district court judge in Maine also denied the preliminary injunction, basically saying that I'm not going to put this regulation on hold while the litigation is ongoing. And then we filed four briefs at the Ninth Circuit panel, so the three-judge panel that was considering whether to reinstate the rule and put the preliminary injunctions on hold while litigation is ongoing. And those briefs pointed out how all of the plaintiffs and even the district court judges in Washington, Oregon, and California talked a lot about access to abortion. And again, why are we talking about access to abortion under a program that explicitly excludes funding from abortion? 
And so we pointed out that what plaintiffs in the states and Planned Parenthood are really complaining about is access to abortion. That's the heart of the case is they want to use Title X funds how they want to use Title X funds and they want to use it to support their abortion services, even if technically the funds don't go to the actual abortion procedure. It pays for the building, it pays for the secretary, it pays for the equipment they use for Title X services, which they also use to support their abortion services right next to it. And so we're very hopeful that as the litigation progresses, these judges are going to continue to recognize that there is no right to a funding for abortion under Title X and that the regulations that HHS have will continue to be upheld. Thank you for breaking that down for us, Rachel. It is very complicated and it's an ongoing issue. Um, it's a microcosm of, of a lot of the issues in the, in the life fight and we're going to keep following it. But let's shift gears and talk about the Supreme Court and Justice Thomas's recent concurrence. Let's first start at the basics. What is a concurrence um, and how does it differ from an opinion or a dissent in the Supreme Court? So the opinion of the court is what the majority of judges or justices agree to as the result of the case. So uh, we'll start with a dissent. So if you disagree with that, you don't join the opinion. And often you'll write a dissent saying why you disagree or why you think it should have come out differently. Now, a concurrence is similar in the sense that you're writing separately, but you don't disagree with the majority opinion itself. So you either agree with the outcome of the case or you also agree with all of the reasoning in the case. But you're writing separately to bring something else out that you wanted to say that a majority of the justices or the judge or justice writing the opinion didn't want to include in the majority, but you think is important enough to say in addition. What was the issue in Box versus Planned Parenthood and how did the court rule? So Box versus Planned Parenthood involved two provisions of Indiana's law. The first was whether fetal remains should be disposed of in a humane and dignified manner through either burial or cremation, and we referenced this a little bit earlier. And the second provision was a non-discrimination provision preventing abortions being performed solely because of the child's race, sex, diagnosis of Down syndrome, disability, or related characteristics. Because there was two provisions, the court did different things with each provision. Regarding the fetal remains, the court agreed that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals below, which had said that this law was unconstitutional, the justices agreed that the court clearly erred because there's obviously a rational reason for and a legitimate reason for the state to require proper disposal of fetal remains. And so it reversed the court below, which had struck down the law and said that this law is okay. Now, regarding the non-discrimination provision, the court said that we're not actually going to take this issue and look at whether, whether this law is constitutional or whether the Seventh Circuit below erred or was correct by saying that this law violates the undue burden test. It cited reasons such as there was no conflicting decisions below in the various circuit courts, and so that's usually an indication that the court is going to take a case if there's conflicting views among the judges below. And in this case, there wasn't, and so that was the reason they cited for not taking the case. So, Rachel, tell us about Justice Thomas's concurrence in Box versus Planned Parenthood. So, Justice Thomas concurred with the result in the fetal remains case, saying that nothing in the Constitution or any decision of the court prevents a state from requiring abortion facilities to provide for the respectful treatment of human remains. And so he agreed with that, but he wrote separately to address the non-discrimination provision. 
So he agreed that there was not the usual indications that the court should take the case at this point, but he wrote separately to address several different issues, including that the state has a compelling interest in preventing abortions from becoming a tool of modern-day eugenics. Okay, yeah, so Justice Thomas writes specifically, and I'll quote this, quote, The use of abortion to achieve eugenic goals is not merely hypothetical. The foundations for legalizing abortion in America were laid during the early 20th century birth control movement. That movement developed alongside the American eugenics movement, and significantly, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger recognized the eugenic potential of her cause. She emphasized and embraced the notion that birth control, quote, opens the way to the eugenist, unquote, and then, unquote. Is Justice Thomas leading the way for more life-affirming decisions to come out of the court, or is this a one-off bit of writing, or how do we parse this? So first off, I think it's big. A justice of the United States Supreme Court is recognizing that eugenic abortions exist. It points out that in a lot of Asian countries, there's a lot of sex-selective abortions, and we've seen this in China with the one-child policy, the two-child policy, that girls are being aborted in favor of boys. We see in Iceland that they're celebrating that they've eliminated Down syndrome. What they forget to say is they've eliminated Down syndrome because they've killed all the children that are going to be born with Down syndrome. And so for a justice of the Supreme Court to recognize that eugenic abortions exist and also to recognize that nothing in the Constitution, nothing in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey or Roe versus Wade support requiring a state to allow eugenic abortions is big. There's a, a bit where he writes at one point that the Constitution itself is silent on abortion. And I think throughout his writing, he, he's writing in such a clear way. I think that's what you channel in your writing that you know, human fetuses are human. He's writing in a way where anybody could pick up. You could go to the Supreme Court's website, download this opinion. You could read his concurrence, and it's so clear and understandable. And it's legally sound as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a really marvelous piece of writing. Yeah, he, he calls out the Supreme Court and what they've done with abortion by creating this right. He says that although the court declines to wade into these issues today, we cannot avoid them forever. Having created the constitutional right to abortion, this court is duty-bound to address its scope. In that regard, it's easy to understand why the lower courts looked to Casey to resolve a question it did not address. Where else can they turn? The Constitution itself is silent on abortion. And so Justice Thomas is speaking out on what the Supreme Court has done, the mess they've created, the lives they've allowed to be taken with their decisions that are not based in the Constitution and not based on science and biology and human decency. Clark Forsyth, senior counsel here at American Center for Life, has often described the Supreme Court as, as acting as a sort of a de facto national abortion control board uh, ever since its Roe v. Wade decision through Casey versus Planned Parenthood and through to the present, where the Supreme Court has sort of taken upon itself the ability to dictate abortion policy to all 50 states. And this has been, as you're saying, a, a difficult thing for Americans uh, and for lives affected by this. Uh, and so it's fascinating to see, as you're saying, Justice Thomas digging into this and pointing out that, you know, the Supreme Court's decisions time and again are causing confusion. They're causing there to be a, an unsettledness to this issue. So it's important to keep following it. Definitely. When the Supreme Court created the right to abortion, 
it's not bound to any text. And so states are left with trying to figure out what does that mean? How far does this right go? What can we do to regulate abortion? Can we do anything? And so the questions have to keep going back up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court keeps having to step in and say, no, you've gone too far. No, this law is okay. You can regulate in this way. And they keep changing their mind. And as you say, that's part of the reason why abortion jurisprudence and the Supreme Court opinions are not settled because they keep changing. They keep changing the standard. Casey changed Roe, Heller set, modified Casey. And so we keep seeing the changing of the goalposts and the moving different ways. And some laws are okay, some laws are not. And it's unclear why, because there is no rational reason behind why some laws are okay and others aren't. And Justice Thomas is calling out the justices of the Supreme Court to do something to fix the mess that they created. All right, Rachel, thank you for guiding us through these issues. We're going to look forward to talking to you again in the future. But before we go, we've got to do our weekly shot of gratitude. So, Rachel, what is something that you're grateful for? Well, I'm grateful for I'm about to leave for Iceland to go backpacking for about five days with my dad. So very excited about that. Beautiful. That's awesome. I am grateful for, you know, every day I get to walk past the old stone house in Washington, D.C., which is the oldest standing structure, the oldest surviving standing structure in the District of Columbia. And it's much different from the architecture of the rest of Washington, certainly modern Washington. And it's a good reminder of kind of where we've come from as a country and hopefully some of the things that are worth keeping. In any event, Rachel, thank you for joining us. We hope to speak with you again in the coming weeks on the upcoming Supreme Court term. Thanks for having me. I am Tom Shakely. And until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.